nearest bond. Good evening, Your Majesty. Welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. And this is our podcast about monarchy, where we just talk about what it means to be sitting on the throne with a crown on your head, and that's well, pretty much... Well, we speculate what it means to be sitting on the throne with a crown on your head. Naturally. So this is the third in our three-part series on Queen Elizabeth, the woman herself, and... Um, we're really excited to get into this week because we're moving into present day, something mm-hmm. that I think you and I will have a lot to talk about because we watch the news and we read the gossip and um, it's it's just a really interesting time in this current phase of the British monarchy. But before we get to that, do you, should we do our royal oops? Yeah, you said you had some corrections? Oh yeah, I do. Okay. So last time we were talking and um, we kept mentioning this concept of uh, jubilee and it's going to come up again tonight. So what I wanted to do, it's not maybe so much of a correction, but I wanted to give a nice explanation of what a jubilee is because I think we don't have them, right? And I, I was a little bit confused as to when and why and what the importance was. So, Well, we used to live in a place that celebrated something called Jubilee Day. <laughs> And I never understood. It's like a party, basically. Yeah, essentially that's what it is. It's a big celebration of a momentous occasion. And I believe when I was looking this up, the reference actually is biblical. So it goes way, way back. But in modern day usage, it generally refers to a celebration of a monarch reaching some kind of milestone in their reign. So at least in the concept, we're talking about it here why were we having Jubilee Day in Pennsylvania? I don't know. We, I want to look this up now. We'll ignore that. Yeah. But typically you'd do one at the 25th, 40th, 50th, 60th, 70th anniversary. So what we've seen, and it goes silver, which is 25th, and then ruby. I was surprised ruby came next. Did they do a ruby jubilee? Um, you know, I didn't see any reference to that online, and I think some of them are maybe bigger milestones, like 25 is a big deal, 50 was a big deal, that was the golden jubilee. Right. Um, and then and then you have 60, which... Um, was, was diamond. Big, diamond, and that was a big deal because only, I think, one other person had gotten there. And then 70 is going to be platinum, and... That's going to be a big one because I don't, I don't think anyone's ever celebrated a platinum jubilee. Mm-mm. So Nope, she'll be the first. Yeah, so um, I just wanted to put that out there because we're going to talk about the golden and diamond jubilees today. So I thought it'd be nice to sort of sound like we know what we're talking about a little bit. Yeah. Um, the second thing that I wanted to correct, and I had brought this up last time and I said I was going to look it up, is this concept of the prince consort. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, so we were talking about it, and I was right. That was the title that Albert held. So um, Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, was known as the Prince Consort. But he is the only British spouse of a queen to have held the title. So 
Um, there's lowercase prince consort and uppercase prince consort. So Albert, Philip, they're both prince consort in the sense that they are married to the queen, but they don't hold uh, the title of king in their own right. Um, but Albert actually held the title Prince Consort with a capital P, capital C. Philip is a prince of the United Kingdom, but he is not Prince Consort. Right. And the only reason I think that that has any kind of relevance is that they've, it's been said that when Charles becomes king, um, Camilla is not going to be known as Queen Camilla because that is something that they've done to appease the general public who loved Princess Diana and wanted to see a Queen Diana, and instead they're going to get Queen Camilla. So um, the party line at the moment is that Camilla will be princess consort, not queen. Um, so as if you know, if she was queen, Charles would be prince consort. They're sort of treating it the same way that they would. Um, that remains to be seen. I I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't end up being the case. But that's that's what's been announced for now. I mean, I can imagine if that's something that they announced at the time that they got married, when people were like a little still cared a little bit more. But by the time Charles becomes king, it will have been over thirty years since. Diana died, so it's not unreasonable to think that they might change their mind. Yeah. And, like, we'll, just we'll based see. on public sentiment, you know? I think it's kind of interesting that if you have a king and um, he's married to a woman, she just becomes the queen. But if you have a queen, the spouse does not become a king because somehow king is, no matter what, in whatever context, deemed to be higher yeah, the it's queen. the preeminent ruler, mm -hmm. yeah. It's really um, interesting to me. And then, but they were really the only two in history, right? Because, like, if I remember correctly, like, Queen Mary was, like, William and Mary. And then Queen Anne, was she married to anyone? Well, there was Queen Mary, who was the first daughter of Henry VIII. Um, well, that's a different Mary then, yeah. Yeah, but she did rule England as Queen Mary for a time, and she was married to the, um, I think he was the king, he was from Spain, um, and I believe he did not hold a king title, and I might have to, that might have to be next week's correction, I'm going to have to go back and look at that, um, but she was married, and I don't believe, I don't believe he was known as the king of England, but I think he was the king of Spain, or a prince of Spain. Um, I don't know that he spent a lot of time in England. Well, weren't they, like, betrothed when they were, like, two years old? No, no. Am I she, remembering she that had, wrong from the tutors? She, she had quite a lot of <laughs> potential suitors over the years as her father's political ambitions and situation changed. Um, but when she came to the throne, she picked her own husband. Okay. And she picked the Spanish monarch. We'll have to do an episode on her sometime because she, I think she's pretty fascinating. She is. She is. She actually feels a bit nuts. Um, well, I mean, she was a bit of a religious extremist, but uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, okay, so what about Queen Anne? Did she have a person? Uh, I'd have to look that up. Yeah. But she I didn't rule for very long. I don't think she was long. a queen in her own right. No, I think she was. I don't 
think so. Um, but we'll have to we'll have to look that up. So yeah, that's all I got she for was, you. She I don't was know. <laughs> very short lived, but I don't remember if she was. I thought she was a queen in her own right, but maybe I'm getting that mix, mixed up. She might um, have been, but I think maybe it was just um, kind of unstable, and maybe she just wasn't there for very long. I will we'll look it up. We yeah. promise. Next week, we'll talk about yeah. the correction to Queen Anne's status in history. But it is true that anytime you have a queen on the throne, you're not going to have a king by marriage. It's just not done. Um, and I think that's to sort of protect the sovereignty of the queen. Um, I just think it's kind of interesting that you don't do that the other way. I wonder if you would, like, you know how when Elizabeth became queen and her mother was also known as the queen, so they changed her title to the queen mother because they didn't want to call her the dowager queen? So I wonder if, like, there's ever a queen on the throne and then, um, like, say say there's a queen and then um, the queen has a daughter, so you have two successive queens and then, but the queen dies before her husband so then there's like is there going to be like the prince father <laughs> i think i think at that point there's still just a prince yeah i don't know i'm just having fun with <laughs> yeah no it's 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 really interesting um the way that they all the protocol maybe we'll do like a mini sode on the protocol because it's also interesting if you don't have a title like that's why kate middleton goes as duchess of cambridge because she's not a princess in her own right she is Princess William of Wales. That would be her title if she was to use the princess title. Um, but that level of princess, I believe the better title to use is duchess. Because in some cases, duke and duchess actually outranks prince and princess. Unless you're of the royal blood. It's, we'll have to do an, we're going to have to do a little episode of that because it's actually really fascinating how that goes. And that's why you have Princess Michael of Kent, who's married to Michael of Kent. She doesn't have any other title that she chooses to use, or her highest ranking title is Princess Michael. So that's why she goes by Princess Michael. Yeah, that's why they think they're probably going to give Harry and Meghan some sort of Duke and Duchess title because otherwise she'd be the Princess Henry of Wales. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to. Not do of something. Wales or whatever. Yeah, right. No, it is Wales because their father yeah. is the Prince of Wales. Yeah, it's. It would be weird. Anyway, um, do you have any more royal oops to correct? That's all I've got. Okay, um, I've got a little bit of royal gossip that oh. that I heard, okay. which is also a little bit bizarre to me, but apparently, Harry and Meghan were invited to attend the Oscars in some capacity, whether that be, like, attendees or presenters, like, they potentially wanted them to present an award for something, which, if you think about it, isn't really that bizarre in that William and Kate very frequently attend the BAFTAs, um, but that's because they're patrons of the BAFTAs. Um, Harry and Meghan have no association with the Oscars other than Meghan used to be an actress, right? Um so I'm trying to imagine what would have happened had they done this, but also apparently they were very eager to do it is the interesting thing to me is that they just couldn't make the security work and that's why they ultimately didn't do it. That's crazy to me that, that, like, that why they would, would they be allowed do to do it. Yeah, or why would they – it seems like the kind of thing they'd be like, thanks, but no thanks, but like what platform are they serving by showing up at the Oscars? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Let's just take a step back. Like – Put aside security, 
the whole thing, right, is that Megan is leaving actress or acting behind, right? So yeah, why would they so soon after they've announced the engagement, they're planning the wedding, remind the world that she's an actress? Yeah, if she's supposedly so done with Hollywood, like, why are you going back? And as if I was Megan, you know, previously to her relationship with Harry, she probably was dying to go to the Oscars. Well, that's, that's what I was wondering is like, you know, not everyone gets invited to the Oscars, even if you're an actor. And like, I'm imagining like maybe she was like, oh, this is my only chance that's ever been offered to me to go to the Oscars. Like, let's do it. But personally, if my, if my whole life's ambition was to be an actress, and I, of course, the pinnacle is to be invited to the Oscars, preferably as a nominee, and, and, and that doesn't happen, would you want your only chance to be because of who you're marrying? I mean, yeah, that's the only reason she would get invited is because of, like, together as Harry and Meghan, they're like this spectacle, which is the only reason they were probably invited if they if they were. Yes, if be, all this is true, if I all just this have is a true, hard time yeah. believing that they would they would ever say yes. But I, I also wonder, like, what is the reason for inviting them beyond, like, you get more viewers or something, like the spectacle of it, it's, but, like, that's that's why the Oscars would invite them, but why would they ever go? Like, it's, that's the part that was crazy to me is that they were even considering it because, like, usually they're very careful about having an actual platform to promote or, you know, patronage or something, and they have no ties to the Oscars. I don't know. The only thing I can think is it's the 90th anniversary of the Oscars this Tonight, I'm very excited. Um, and, you know, they probably know they're in the news. It'd be, a, it'd be a big get. Yeah. But why would they? But there has, I feel like there has to be a reason for them to do it. Well, and I think that's why they're not going. I have a hard time believing they couldn't have figured out the security. Yeah. I mean, if, if Kate and William can go to the BAFTAs, then surely they can figure out the security for the Oscars. Yeah. I, I, think, I, I think ultimately... Which is why I think it's interesting, like, I'm more inclined to believe they weren't considering it that seriously, but um, also I, I wonder. It's an interesting, it's a fun one to think about, I think. Because, it, it, like, on one hand, it makes absolutely no sense, and on the other, you're kind of like, of course they would do it, right? Right. I don't know. They seem like the pair that's going to end up, like, dismantling all of royal protocol and tradition and just kind of, like, be normal people, I think, in some way. As normal as you can be. Right, as normal as you can be in that capacity, but, like, they already seem to be sort of, like, flaunting protocol in some way. Like, I think the other day Megan also, like, overtly referred to the Me Too and Time's Up movements, and, like, there was that whole kerfuffle about whether Kate was allowed to wear black to the BAFTAs because they were continuing the Time's Up thing, and um, she ultimately didn't. She wore, like, dark green. Like, I think it was kind of a nod without actually doing it because mm -hmm. in a lot of pictures it didn't really look that different. But um, she got a lot of flack for not wearing black, but the thing is is that the royals don't participate in, like, political protests, I guess. Um, but then, like, a week later, Megan was referring to overtly to Time's Up and Me Too and not in the concept of it as, like, a political movement, just, like, something she supports. So I was kind of like, oh, wait, why is, like, it seems like they're approaching it in very different ways. Well, I think that's the difference in their positions. You know, right. first of all, William and Kate were at the BAFTAs in the capacity of William being there he's like the royal patron or he's in, he's the president or something like that. 
um, they were there in an official capacity. And I think that's one layer of it. And I think the second layer of it is she is the future queen. You know, she doesn't have the freedom to go out there and say, yeah, I'm wearing black to support this movement. You know, she, she, I think she has to walk that line. And no matter what, if she had worn black, she would have been criticized. And she was criticized for not wearing black. So I think that is a fine line to walk that Meghan and Harry are never going to have to walk. I do agree that I think that's the real answer. But it is interesting to see the juxtaposition of their positions like that. Oh, uh, that was any good gossip. Yeah, I would say that's all I've got. <laughs> we got to talk about the Oscars, which you know I yeah. love to watch. Okay, so today we're talking about um, Queen Elizabeth in the new millennium. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Two thousand, the year two thousand comes around, and, and and as everybody listening probably remembers, that was that was a big deal. You know, a new century, a new millennium, and here we are with the same queen, the same monarchy. I actually found a really nice quote that I'm going to read that I think is a good, um, brings us full circle. So this is from the book, My Husband and I by Ingrid Seward. And it's a biography of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, just focusing on their relationship. And um, I think I referenced it last week and talking about um, the beginning of their marriage and what it was like with him giving up his naval career and all of that. Um, but, you know, she says, When the Queen came to the throne in 1952, the United Kingdom was a far different place than it is today. There were no mobile telephones, no internet, no color televisions, and no European Union. The House of Lords was made up exclusively of hereditary peers. Homosexuality was illegal and punishable with the term in prison. Divorced persons were not allowed into the royal enclosure at Ascot races. And the British Empire still colored red a large part of the globe. And that's something we talked about a lot when she first came on the throne. But it's kind of interesting to take a look back and think about where she started and where you are 50 years later um, in, a, in a completely new millennium. Not even just a new century, a completely new decade, new century, new millennium. And to say that she hasn't in some way been forced to evolve as the world evolves wouldn't be correct because what we've seen in the last almost 20 years since the dawn of the new millennium is, I, I say, arguably a more modern, more accessible, more relaxed m royal family. Yeah, they seem, you know, well, I think they had to allow a lot of things to change and Maybe they seem more relaxed, but maybe it's just, maybe they are, or maybe that's just, like, they just don't seem so uptight. Well, so it's interesting because, okay, we talked last time about the 80s and the 90s, and I think that was just a roller coaster. It was a wild ride, you know, the Annus Horribilis, and sorry again, excuse my Latin. Um, that, that whole 20-year period arguably culminating in 1997, I think, with the death of Princess Diana. Um, it, it was just, as I think, as they got to the year 2000, it was kind of like, okay, let's hit the reset button. Let's start over. But what you see is in 2002, Princess Margaret and the Queen Mother died within two months of each other. And it's, it's almost like the old guard is slowly falling away. And, I mean, think of it, the Queen Mother was 101 when she died. 
Like a long-lived family. Very long-lived family, but think back to 18, or let's say 1900, because if she died in 2002, okay, she was 1901. Born in 1901, I guess. Yeah, okay, yeah. 1901. I'm, I'll get there eventually. <laughs> um I think you should just start having a calculator. I know out I need to put it next this. to me. Um, but 1901 to 2000, I mean, the world was a completely different place. Not even just talking about wearing corsets, but what was acceptable for a woman to to do, to talk about, to hear, to be exposed to. I mean, the world had changed considerably, and you see a lot of that in Princess Margaret. You know, the life she lived. And I think it's just really interesting in 2002, they both die and it kind of leaves Elizabeth and Philip as the last two standing from that earlier, more, let's say stuffy time period, for lack of a better word. And then you see the emergence of these younger royals, this new generation who come forward and have very different ideas of what it means to be a monarch and um you know the beginning of the millennium elizabeth and philip went on a pretty extended tour of the commonwealth but that was the last time they ever did that and so what we start to see at the beginning of this period is this we're we're at the beginning of the end and i and i think it's pretty clear you know they take their last tour they start doing fewer appearances. You see Charles stepping up to the plate and it very much does feel almost like a winding down. In some ways. I mean, and even Charles and in some cases, you know, um, she'll send William or Harry to do something that she otherwise might have done. Yeah, it's, I think, I, I think at a certain point, the younger generation has to become more visible because that's how you prepare the public, Right. And them. I mean, a lot of this comes from experience, you know, like a lot of like knowing how to handle being the center of attention on a royal foreign tour or, you know, like sending Prince Harry to the Caribbean or William and Kate to Australia. You know, these are official duties that they're um, performing, but it's also training for the future because as the queen stops doing her duty, so then Charles picks up more of hers, and then therefore William picks more of Charles's, and therefore Harry takes up more of William's. You know, it's like the baton gets passed further down the line. Right, and every time you do that, each person brings kind of a fresh perspective and a fresh twist. Um, I think this is an, we've talked about this a lot, but I think especially in the context of the reign of Queen Elizabeth, you just see how the monarchy is forced to evolve. You, as the world changes, you cannot remain stagnant because they're in a very precarious position. This is arguably an outdated institution. I mean, to be told you're special by virtue of your birth is an idea that's falling more and more and more out of favor as we move forward in time. And yeah, I think, and I think even for some of the members of the royal family, they, they agree with that, but it's out of a sense of duty that you don't... It's like... You might believe that it's absurd that you were born into this situation and therefore are considered, a, you know, some sort of important person just by nature of your birth, but also you're not going to be the person to, like, end the tradition, you know? Oh, so you just keep right. going out of duty. I don't think anybody wants to be known as the last king or queen of Britain. Yeah. But it, it's just an interesting theme to think about as we talk about some of the things that have happened because one of the 
things that I want to mention is I think the biggest picture, the biggest example of how this institution has evolved is Charles was finally allowed to marry Camilla in 2005. So that's, that's a big deal because, first of all, as we know, she was his lifelong paramour mistress, the one that got away, whatever, whatever yeah. label at various times you want to put on it. But we know, we talked about previously, she wasn't viewed as a suitable match for him. Um, she, she didn't have the right history. She was, she wasn't meek enough. She wasn't considered the right fit. You know, she wasn't a virginal 19 year old blonde, blue eyed fairy tale princess for lack of a better word. Um, I mean, I mean, not to be like put a crude point on it, but it really boiled down to, she wasn't a virgin. (laughs) Right. Well, and, and that other people knew that, I think. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't, you, they couldn't keep that part secret. Right. And, and so it's really interesting that in 2005, um, they are finally allowed to marry. And so you have a monarch marrying a divorced woman. And it's well, not, he's not the monarch. Hold on. He's going to be. So yeah. you have, okay, I should say a future monarch. Yes. Marrying a divorced woman. And 50 years prior... That was reason enough for Edward VIII to abdicate his throne. Yes. But the here we are 50 years think, in the future, and it's, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, because I think public attitudes and also the monarch in question was also a divorcee as well. So, right. you know, there was part of that. And also the queen, though, didn't attend the wedding. Right. Well, so the, it does get a little tricky because the monarch, as you know, is the head of the Church of England, and... Um, that the position of the Church of England is very similar to the Catholic Church in that divorce is bad, and if you do get divorced, you can't have another wedding in the church, although that is changing, um, and we'll get to that in a second, but that, that idea was still very much in place in 2005, and then, and then you had the idea that as the monarch, as the head of the church, the queen didn't feel it was proper for her to be seen as overtly sanctioning a marriage. So what they did was they had a civil marriage and then they had a blessing in the chapel. And I believe that, I believe she attended the blessing. Is that correct? Uh, either that or like the reception or something. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly, but um, it was it was still, divorce was still a tricky enough issue that it's, amazing to me that they were allowed to get married and um but it was a very small thing like it was not a huge affair right right I'm but I'm just talking about the fact that they were allowed to do it at all and then the fact that this isn't going to keep Charles from one day taking the throne um he's still going to be allowed to be the head of the church of England ceremoniously as a uh, as a man on his second marriage and you know 50 years well, ago that was just not that was not even a concept so, anybody I guess can wrap the, their brains around. But is that is he going to be the head of the church? Well, who I mean, have they answered wasn't? that question? I haven't heard he's not. Yeah, I mean, like usually the the monarch is, but I I haven't heard if they're going to, you know, make a different sort of exception for Charles. I, I think if they if they weren't going to let him do it, he wouldn't have gotten married. To be fair. All of this really should have been moot because the Church of England was begun 
by a divorced man. Oh, yeah, it's completely ridiculous. So it's a little bit hypocritical. Like, if Henry VIII can be the head of the Church of England, then anybody can be the head of the Church of England. Henry VIII told the Catholic Church he was divorcing them, basically, and then started a new church and just copied everything that they did. Like, the religion was the same, they just called it something different. The only only difference was, like, they were a little more lenient about divorce. Well, they only slightly... I mean, only for the monarch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Henry VIII did whatever he wanted. I just, I think that is one of the things that just marks how far this reign has come in the public attitudes and, and, and this idea of, okay, we did this before, it caused a huge problem. I, you know, encouraged my son to marry someone, quote unquote, suitable, and that was a disaster. And, and maybe we should just relax a little bit and, and let the man marry the woman he wants to marry. And I think it helps that they weren't going to have children. There was no question of that. Um, they, you know, married much later in life, so we weren't going to have a challenger to the throne. But it's still, it's still really, really interesting. You know, even going back to Princess Margaret, we talked about that last time. She wasn't allowed to marry Peter Townsend because he was divorced. Well, the many reasons. But attitudes change, and the monarch has to change with them. I think it helped change her mind when three of her children got divorced. Yeah, something clearly wasn't working. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then what's interesting is that the next marriage, the next big marriage that you see is um, Prince William marries Kate Middleton. And that was in 2001, or sorry, 2011. Here you have a future monarch marrying a commoner. She's and not, not a only that. of the British aristocracy. She's not a foreign princess. She's she's literally middle she's middle class. She's not even upper class. Well, whatever that means yeah, because that's a little trickier in Britain. But uh, you know, she's not I don't know how you can be millionaires and still be middle class. I it, well, it, it it has to do with your upbringing and your birth, I believe. Right. You absolutely. Know, so, you know, he basically just married a regular girl, and I think she was the first commoner to marry a future monarch since, well, was the queen mother considered a commoner? Nope. We're going to look that up for our next royal oops. But anyway, it's, it's a I big deal. I think she deal. was from an aristocratic family. <sighs> yeah, I think you might be right. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm going to look that up. But But the other thing I want to mention about William and Kate is they also lived together for many years before they were married. And they were the first ones allowed to do that. You know, talk about changing attitudes. That's where I was going with that. So, you know, not only did he marry a commoner, but he married his college sweetheart and they had been together for a decade. And it was just even go back a generation no one was worried about the fact that they knew Kate wasn't a virgin. She wasn't walking down the aisle. Um, you know, she had relationships behind her, and that and that was okay. It's yeah. just it's just really and just one generation from his father. Like that totally went out the window. You know, right? And and I just think it's an interesting case study because you have the same woman in charge throughout all of this, and I think it's just a sort of indicative of this relaxation of attitudes and because even as the world's attitude towards these issues changes you know in other ways the crown very much stays resolute in its positions I mean you still have I was reading in the book that I was talking about they still use um measuring yardsticks when they turn down the beds (laughs) 
because everything has to be a certain, you know, measurement. Like, I guess the comforter has to be two feet from the pillow or something like that. So it's, it's just, it's in some ways they stay very much unchanged. And then you have these rather large issues that have just become moot at this point down the road. And, um, you know, coming up in May 2018, we have Harry is going to marry Meghan Markle, who is an American. So she's, forget commoner, she's not even British. She's an actress and she's divorced. Mm-hmm. And everyone says, you know what, Harry? You're in love. Go for it. Have a happy now, life I think together. In that particular instance, though, I think a lot of it is changing attitudes and like just modern times. But also, I think Harry's not going to become the king. Oh, definitely not. I mean, that's a huge part of it. Like, William doesn't... I don't see a situation where they were still, like, like they would have been like, William, yeah, you're in love, go for it, you know? Yeah, but I'm just... But Princess Margaret didn't get the same treatment. No, no. I mean, I'm saying that is definitely, like, changing attitudes, but I also think even with that, he's allowed more leeway. Yeah, I think he, I think he gets away with a lot, as it is. He's allowed to have facial hair. Is that a thing that they're not? Yeah, they're supposed to. I think at all public appearances, and especially when they're in uniform, they're supposed to be freshly shaven. Mm. But he's been rocking that ginger beard for a while. I don't know. It looks good. <laughs> Maybe the queen recognizes that too. Maybe, yeah. So. But I think I think all of this is that, from what I understand reading about the queen and, you know, it seems that she's above all a pretty pragmatic person. You know, and like there's no reason to cause issues and drama over things like this that she might have come to see ultimately don't matter. You know, it's better to have people be happy and get and be with who they want than to force situations that cause pain and scandal 20 years down the road, you know? Well, I mean, you know, we talked about that last time, the 80s and the 90s and all the scandals that erupted. I mean, the press was relentless. Was well, relentless. they were, but also I think there has to be some soul searching in that you kind of realize that on some level it all could have been avoided. Yeah, and and I think ultimately a lot of this also comes down to how how do you want to be perceived? How how do you, you know, do you want to be perceived as being cold and not letting your family members follow their hearts and and now, you know, I think she's getting a lot of um praise for relaxing these standards and and letting these marriages happen and um all of this, if you know, I think I think it would be impossible to argue is not a reaction and learning, further learning and evolution from the previous decades that we talked about. And I think that's normal. That's how people go through life. It's just it's refreshing to see that they aren't saying remaining so set in their ways. Well, and I think also ultimately this is good from a you know genetic standpoint where at least they're finally branching out of the family tree a little bit, you know? <laughs> like, Elizabeth married her cousin, and distant cousin, but they were cousins, and, you know, now you've got with Charles and Diana, and then William and Kate, and um, now Harry and Meghan, you know, presumably you're sort of creating some new branches on that family tree a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're, the inbreeding, the inbreeding has reversed a little. Yes. 
Yeah, because I mean, that's that's kind of the thing people don't really, I think, like to dwell on a lot. But I mean, most of those European monarchs were related to each other in more than one way, and uh, you know, for the health of the family. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's let's bring in some fresh blood. Yeah. So anyway, I just I just wanted to bring those up because I thought I just thought those are really good examples and fairly recent examples of how things have really really changed, um, and and I think it's also this idea that you owe the public something that has prior to Elizabeth's reign I don't think was a very big. Um, consideration, but you know, you can start going all the way back to televising her coronation. It was this idea of we're gonna we're gonna give the public access. You know, we're gonna agree with them that we're here to serve them and that they have the right to see what's going on. And so, I think as you continue to go along here, we, we see more and more peaks behind the scenes. Um, you know, we to go back to our favorite show. In the Crown, they had in the 60s when they started opening up Buckingham Palace and letting people come inside, and then they would invite various people in the um, society and community to come and have lunch with the Queen. And um, a lot of that was a direct result of the criticism that was coming, but, you know, it hasn't stopped. As the world continues to grow and people demand access, I think it's this idea now you have to stay relevant, right? You have mm-hmm. a press office. You have public relations managers. And I'm not sure in 1952 if you would have seen the Queen participating in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics the way she did in London. Um, she she became a Bond girl. Yeah. <laughs> Jumped out of an airplane with Daniel Craig and everything. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think that you would have seen her participating in filming a small short and hanging out with James Bond. And, I mean, they made it look like she parachuted into the arena. And I think that's a reflection of the modern times that we're in. And also going back to this idea of relaxation. You know, the Queen's maybe a little bit more relaxed about such things. The older she gets, you know, it's like... The older people get, the less they generally care. That like I don't give a shit attitude, and I think I think that's one of the ways that you see that. Yeah, I think it was also like Harry convinced her to do some promo stuff for his Invictus Games. Yep, and she's sort of allowed herself to have a little bit of fun. Yeah, and and even recently, I remember I was watching. I don't know if it was on the BBC or something on England, but they did an interview. And they were talking about the crown jewels and she agreed to sit down and talk about the crown. And in, in, in the interview, she's, you know, manhandling the crown, like the, the guy sitting across from her and just looking at this revered piece of clothing or accessory, for lack of a better word. And she's just touching the diamonds and fluffing the fur and talking about how heavy it is. And um, it's. I, I just don't know that you would have ever seen that. She wasn't promoting anything. She wasn't marking any kind of anniversary. She, they just asked her if she would do it, and she said yes. I mean, but also maybe she's recognizing that who else is the living authority on what it means to wear that crown? There is no one else. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I just think it's interesting that she would agree to that interview and agree that there was an, 
implicitly that there was a need to do it. I just, I think you just see more and more access and you see that with the younger generations. They're doing videos, they're using social media, they're on Instagram, not individually, but they really use it, especially um, the Kensington Palace Instagram is pretty active Mm -hmm. and they are recognizing how how to stay relevant as we move forward. And I, I think this brings us to our, the last piece that I wanted to bring up was they're laying the groundwork now so that they have enough goodwill and relevance so that when, when the queen dies, not if, I mean, we're in the period now where it's when, not if. Right. Can the monarchy survive without her? She's been on the throne for so long. I think a lot of people, it, it's interchangeable in their minds. Queen Elizabeth is the crown, the throne of England. And what happens when she's gone? Is the same goodwill going to remain for her son? Right. I mean, do people then have to realize, is this love I have for her the lo- a love for her, or do I still actually support this institution that she represents? I think I think that that is going to be a really interesting question. I, I really wouldn't be surprised if there is a bit of a rise in republicanism. The you know they've seen it anytime she's being criticized in the press. You get this increase in um, the population, although granted it generally remains as a min- minority view. But this idea like of let's do away with the monarchy, and you know she's. It's not like she's going to hand the crown over early. She's 91 years old. There's no concept of retirement for her. I think that's been a question is the older she gets, is she going to retire? Is she going to abdicate? And, you know, I think barring some kind of incapacity, she's not going to do that. You know, we've seen Philip retire, but he's 96. I don't see her... I don't see her ever doing that. Like, I think it's unless she faces some sort of mental issue, you know, with dementia or, you know, something or has a stroke or something, I don't see her choosing to step down because I think she truly believes this is her duty. She absolutely does. And I think she takes it very seriously. She promised to serve her country till the day she dies. And I think... I think she truly intends to do that. And it's, you know, we, we talked about jubilees at the beginning, and this brings me to where I was going with this, but in 2002, she celebrated the Golden Jubilee, and that was a pretty big deal. That was 50 years on the throne. But in 2012, it was the Diamond Jubilee, and that was a really big deal. They did, I think it was like three days of events, and the big centerpiece of the ceremonies was this pageant of boats um, on the River Thames. Did I say that correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, of over a thousand, 1,000 boats, it, you know, made the seven-mile trip down the river, and over a million people showed up to line the banks of the river to watch this happen. That's a huge demonstration of love for the Queen, but I wonder if those million people would show up in the same way for Charles. Definitely not for Charles, but maybe for William. <laughs> maybe, but I don't think, you know, I, I think the problem with Charles is that he's been waiting on deck his whole life. 
and he's sort of the punching bag and he wasn't particularly charismatic and he wasn't particularly interesting but arguably neither was queen elizabeth no i mean that's the thing like she's earned this over 60 years like you know they might line up for these successors one day like this but it doesn't happen overnight no and but i I think that that's that's what i'm getting at as we have all these people that are just so used to having queen elizabeth on the throne and when she's finally gone is it going to take another 50 years to rise to that same level of goodwill or is it going to bring in a lot of hand-wringing and self-reflection as a nation what what are they going to do in this modern age you have the last the last remnant of the, you know, British Empire, essentially, is gone. And, and how are they going to evolve? And I think that's what, I'm, what I was talking about with Instagram and all of that, is I think, I think they're laying the groundwork. I think they're trying to make it so that people still feel some kind of connection. I think you're right. I think, you know, build the visibility, the connection, the you know, social media presence so people feel like they have a window into these lives. I mean, and they don't put anything on social media that's not, you know, um, about, like, professional engagements or, um, you know, different charities that they're supporting. And every once in a while, you know, we get a picture of, you know, George or Charlotte. But um, it's 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 still ultimately a business account, right? But it it, it does serve the purpose of giving a window that isn't, like, oh, I'm, I'm seeing this in the press or something. You know, like they're choosing to control what goes out there. And so it feels a little bit more personal. Yeah, I just think it's going to be really interesting. You know, I mean, you have this new generation doing things like allegedly considering going to the Oscars. And we're coming at that from this idea of, oh, well, Queen Elizabeth would never allow that. That's, that's just completely crazy. But then if you come back to this part of our conversation and you think about it, is it? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe in 10 years it's like they come every year. <laughs> I mean, why? I don't know, but I still can't get over the why, but um you know, yeah, I mean, they think they become I think the danger though is do they become more celebrity than institution? Well, that's the whole, you know, going back to Diana and her fame. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I don't think they want to become the British Kardashians. Let's just take a moment and picture that with that, like if they had a reality show and it was like this week, Harry wants to go to the Oscars and the whole family weighs in and then, you know, you just see William shouting into his cell phone, no, you can't. I just went to the BAFTAs. You're going to upstage. Kate didn't wear a black dress. What's Megan going to wear? You know, it's just like a whole thing. What, what was that? That was my, <laughs> my gorgeous British accent. <laughs> And that, that was William's high pitched. You sound like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> no, yeah. You can't do it. No. That's no. <laughs> all, all I got for it. All right. I mean, I think these are all, you know, these are all what ifs. They're open questions. I mean, I think these are questions that British people think about, the press obviously thinks about. And, you know, there's this sort of mo- like groundswell movement to skip Charles and go for William directly. I don't see that ever happening. Charles has been waiting way too long to skip his turn. <laughs> So, oh man, no way. Um, but it, you know, I think I think the the underlying theme of all of that is just the future is an unknown quantity because I think when you have such a long reigning monarch, 
and everything is relatively stable in that regard for so long that impending change is always a little scary. And it and in her case, I think because she's been the monarch for so long that instead of just a, tr- a regular transfer, assumed transfer of power, the end of her reign raises different questions, right? Like it's not just when's the next coronation, it's do we want to do this, you know? So and, and what's the what's the legacy? You know, I've thought about it a lot. This is the third woman in British history to reign with incredible longevity and impact and to oversee an incredible um transition during her reign. But she's going to be followed by three men. Yeah. I mean, that that's a little bit upsetting, but it's just the accident of birth. So, but I just think like, you know, what, what is the legacy there? You know, I mean, in our lifetimes, this is the last, could be probably the last queen since George is significantly younger than us. Um, you, you know, when she, when she took the throne, I think there were probably a lot of people who were a little bit nervous. She was 25 years old and it was post World War II and, um, she's got her first prime minister in Winston Churchill. And I think all of them were probably looking at each other thinking, what is this little girl going to do? And yeah. here we are. I like to think, you know, Victoria's reign got a bit mythologized after the fact because it was so long because she, a lot of the um, traditions around the palace and in the family were begun with her and continued out of, well, just tradition. But I, I could sort of see Elizabeth fulfilling the same role after the fact of just becoming the new sort of, because you when, by the time you get to King George, you know, he's three monarchs later, but she's going to loom large for a really long time, I think. Like, her legacy is always going to be the one to live up to. Yeah, and and I mean, I think that kind of sucks for Charles, William, and George. They're going to have to live in that shadow. I don't know if it does or if it... It must also be a little bit comforting in that you have a a guidebook, sort of like a... You have a path to follow. Like, you have such a good example of how to do this most of the time. You know, I'm not... She's not infallible, but... Most of the time she was do, she did a really good job and so you can kind of, you have sort of a a compass to follow, you know. That must be comforting in some way. Yeah, I think so. I just think it's it's just interesting how how much the world has changed since the last coronation. I just keep going back to that and thinking, you know, this impact of her reign I think I think honestly it's like you say like Victoria, you're going to see a little bit of a almost like a cult of personality for lack of a better description of it is this the second Elizabethan era and and how long is that going to continue probably at least up to 10 more years <laughs> i mean she could live into her be to be 105 you never know like yeah her mother was very long lived and um I think she's had a rather healthy lifestyle. Although I did read somewhere that she drinks like half a bottle of gin a day. Or she drinks an entire bottle of wine a day and like three gin cocktails before dinner. She drinks a lot. She starts at like 10 in the morning. 
Sounds like I would enjoy hanging out with her. I think she's just constantly buzzed. Like, I forget. I wish I could, I'm going to find this because it's something like with lunch at like 11 o'clock, she has a glass of wine maybe. And then um, she'll have two gin and tonics or whatever gin drink she's into. And then with dinner, she'll have like a pre-dinner cocktail. And then there's wine with dinner. And then there's cocktails after dinner. And she does that like every single day. Maybe that's the secret. She could probably market like a hangover remedy. But you don't get hungover if you never stop. I guess, yeah. (laughs) And at her age, that's probably nothing. (laughs) She's probably had two gin and tonics and she's just like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to go driving now. (laughs) Yeah, her tolerance, yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that's that's crazy. Wow. <laughs> that's a holdover from another time though. I mean not even not even the fifties. That's a holdover from probably the Victorian era, you know. It was just think of or even think go back to like Downton Abbey, you know, they're just like all hanging out before dinner having cocktails and then they go have dinner and then after dinner there's like more cocktails and you just that's what you do all day, you know. What is a weekend? I d I don't know. I do the same thing every day. I just I have lunch and then I have cocktails and then I have dinner and then I, and then I have more cocktails and then I go to I, bed and then I wake up and I do it all over again. I beg you to stop the accents. Why? <laughs> Why? I'm getting into the spirit of things. You're so bad. Yeah, <laughs> well. Okay, well, um anything more to add about Elizabeth and the millennium? No, I think it's just interesting to see what's next. All mm-hmm. right, catch us on Instagram and um this will be going up Probably once a week for a little while, and then, um, and then we're gonna have to think about who's next. Yep. And are we gonna be live live tweeting the royal wedding in May? Possibly. Okay. Well, we'll let you guys know next time. All right. Well, until then, I will right. talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.